as I begin uh, today's message, I will point out uh, right up front that the last message entitled The Mind of Christ was more or less part one of uh, at least a two-part series. This would be the second part. And I would anticipate where we would leave it today would be unfinished. So it will likely be uh, another part to it. So just to recap, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. And we understood that the verb used there for mind, or the word mind was represented by a verb, which is to say, be minded in this way. Be, you know, like if you're going out of the house as a child and your, your, your mother would say, mind your manners. In other words, let your mind not stray from what you've been taught. Be, be minded in a particular fashion. And, and we looked at the mind of Christ, we saw that there were two critical elements to the mind of Christ. One was humility and the other obedience. Humility, we understood to be the ultimate in titimi, the ultimate in bowing to the will of another displaying an undiluted hope that the other to whose will you bow will stand up on your behalf. The Tatimi Histemi uh, paradigm, where you bow in servitude to the Lord in acknowledgement of his sovereignty, and he takes on the responsibility to stand up in your circumstances that result from your intentional submission, and that being the very essence of, of uh, humility, your intentional submission to his oversight and to his overlordship. And the other was obedience, uh, humility and obedience. And the description of obedience was uh, humbling himself to death, even death on a cross, for which reason or for which upon which basis then God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So you see this nexus between the call to be minded with Christ, with the mind of Christ, and the inevitable response of God in the forms of histemi, or standing up in your circumstance and empowering you uh, to be all that he requires you to be, and also to defend you, to protect you, to resource you, to enable you. When you are found clothed in the humility and obedience of Christ. Now, I want to step back from that by asking the question, to what end ought we be possessors of this mindedness? To what end? 
People often speak, they often quote the scripture that says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what it means is everybody's guess. We can all agree that the scriptures say that, but the implication of what is, what is uh, uh, inferred from that statement remains as much of a mystery as the statement itself. So I want to explore the mind of Christ, uh, which is the fashion in which we are to be in Christ. And whenever you want to know what the end goal of anything that is in progress is, go and take a look at the end of the matter. Go and look at what is, is said to be the summary of the process. When it's all said and done, what? What is the outcome? So if we are to have the mind of Christ, and in this Christ is in us, possessing uh, and dominating our minds, and it says, and in this, the hope of glory, in, to what end? Where, where does God mean to take us with all of that? must always ask questions such as original intent, what is the finality of the issue, because it helps you along the pathway of the journey, it helps you keep your focus where God would have you keep your focus. I mean, look, you cannot for a moment dispute the fact that the church, the evangelical church at the present, is in a state of absolute unmitigated chaos. Total chaos and confusion. No one knows what to do. And the preachers least, least of all. Entire denominations are collapsing in upon themselves as faced with uh, internal scandals of every kind and with membership defecting in droves, having cast their lot with political personages, they now have no uh, independence of thought or action. Nobody's driving this train. We cannot afford to be at such loose ends. It's absolutely dangerous because you'll end up where this train is going before you know that you've gotten there. And then all the consequences of that decision will begin to pile up. Do you for one moment think that Satan is going to let the church have this free ride if it is in fact playing right into Satan's hands. I mean, the thing with uh, the reversal of the Roe versus Wade, is that the end of the story? Do you think? 
or is the backlash beginning to foment and to consolidate? There will come a time when no one will care to listen to the cries and the appeals of Christians who claim that they're being unfairly treated. And it's just around the corner. Now, you don't have to speculate about any of this, you know. The book tells us, and it's not in one reference, we've been deconstructing the book of Revelation and in general deconstructing the prophetic scriptures regarding the end of the age. What does it look like? Does it look like we, we, uh, we come out smelling like a rose? Or does it look like the, the, the opposition to us will become hardened and unconscionable? I mean, what about this prostitute that drinks the blood of the saints? Sits on a beast and holds a cup of filth and abomination in her hands. What about that? Is that just kind of a figure of speech? No, we know how this thing is going to end up. There will be a false church that ends up, so to speak, in bed with the governments of the world. And they will end up being the bride of Christ. The two are not the same, and this separation will occur. It is preparation for this separation that is the reason we are given time right now. So we are to use the time wisely. We are to redeem the time knowing the days are evil. So if you can look then at the things that God is bringing forth for us, such as be minded in Christ, have the mind that was in Christ. What would that relate to? Would that relate to the harlot or would that relate to the true bride of Christ? Ought we be preoccupied with trying to turn the harlot around? Or ought we be preoccupied with clothing ourselves with the mind of Christ? You see, it's, 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 it's that. We shouldn't be in darkness. We shouldn't be in doubt. Now, again, as I said, if you want to know what God means to do uh, by this process, what does he mean to accomplish by this process? Go and look at the end of the process. See what he accomplishes. And then backtrack to the place where we are on the continuum, find ourselves on the spot, and understand what we should be giving attention to now. So here is a powerful passage of scripture regarding the end when it's all said and done. This is actually going all the way to the end of the millennium. It, it, it includes the return of Christ. It includes the end of the age. And when all that God meant to do in creation has been summarized and concluded. So let me read it to you. This is from 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read from verse 24. Now the verse previously had said, uh, had referred to the coming, the coming of Christ, the return of Christ. After that, then, that's, um, that's how this sentence begins, an adverb of, of, of time. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So there'll come a point, you see, when the whole point and purpose of the kingdom will have been accomplished. And that's the end he has in mind here. And Christ, whose kingdom it is, and by the way, his kingdom is everlasting. Kingdom here is not a reference to the bride of Christ. That's the relationship. Kingdom refers to the governmental order and form that resources the bride. The word basileu means the foundation or the basis of power and rule. So then comes the kingdom, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. By the way, you might loop in Revelation chapter 20, which speaks of the great throne of judgment and uh, the actual destruction of the spirit known as death. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire is that particular passage in Revelation 20, just to tie it in. So it comes the end when he will put an end to all rule and authority for he must rule till he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So we know that he's speaking of the post uh, great white throne judgment because the destruction of the spirit of death is a post white throne judgment. That's why I cited Revelation 20. For he must put, verse 27, for he must put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are under, under him, it is evident that he, he who put all things under him is ex accepted. In other words, all things must be put under the feet of Christ except God. That's to put not to find a point on it because God put everything under his feet. God himself will not be put under the feet of Christ, but everything else will. Now, when all things have been made subject to, to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. So everything must first be put under the feet of Christ, everything except God. And then the Son himself will be put 
will be made subject to God. To what end? That God may be all in all. And that's definitive. When, when time no longer is an element of the existence of mankind or does no longer involve God in any way, when that has been accomplished, the kingdom which has worked to perfect the rule of the saints, point of being in the kingdom is to learn how to rule. The point of being in the kingdom is to learn how to rule. And I'll come back to that. Once that goal has been accomplished, and since it's Christ's kingdom, since it's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the sovereign king, we're learning to bow and submit to the rule of Christ. Now, his kingdom is not a visible kingdom. You don't say, look, here it is, or look, there it is. For behold, where's the kingdom of heaven? For the kingdom of heaven is within you. In that manner, Christ is in you, and his presence in you comes with the glory of his presence. So you are learning to submit to him who dwells in you and he is perfecting you in the matter of ruling. Again, this is where I'm going with the message. I'm simply laying out the foundational pieces upon which I intend to build out the rest of the message. God will not be made subject to Christ or to the kingdom because it was God who gave him the kingdom. All authority and rule has been given to me, Jesus said. Go ye therefore and preach. Well, who had it to give? The Father. So having received a kingdom, Christ is able to receive us into his kingdom, which is to say, he caused us to escape from the dominion of darkness and the rule of Satan and to bring us into citizenship unto, under submission to Christ within the kingdom of heaven. In that condition, we then learn to, to rule the way Christ ruled to fill up the measure, to put on display the glorious rule of Christ. When that has been done, when we've learned the rule of Christ, and by the way, the alternative to the rule of Christ would be our own rule or the rule of Satan, both of which would lead to destruction. But once we 
learn to rule as Christ rules, there's an end to that process. It will take us through the millennium. We're actually learning to rule now in that way. One of the elementary doctrines that we touched on very early was eternal judgment. Remember that? That's how you rule from an eternal perspective. You judge everything by standards that do not pass away and cannot be either corrupted or altered. Learning to rule that way, and I'll come back to all of this. Uh, learning to rule that way will be carried on up to and including the millennium. When it's done, then frankly, the point and the purpose of the millennium will have been finished. We would have been perfected in rule. Right now, in this present age and before the millennium, the goal is different, but it leads into the next phase. The goal now is to learn obedience by the things we suffer. That is why we are to be minded the way that Christ is minded. This is why we are to learn obedience by the things we suffer. Having the mind of Christ, the mind of humility, the mind of obedience. Change of the mindset. That, by the way, is the, is the biblical term repentance. Repentance from acts that lead to death and having clothed your minds with the obedience and um, humility of Christ. Now, as you progress in, in walking in this fashion, and I'll, I'll give you both uh, the subject matter of how our minds are different and the examples of. Uh, how God will put himself on display in us and through us with a different mindset. Right? But I'm, again, I'm laying out the, the, the difficulty with, with the message of wisdom amongst the mature is that it's not how we normally think. It's not even how we normally think the Bible instructs us. But it is what it's saying. If in the end God desires to be all in all, meaning all of himself in the corporate man, then along this path, each of us personally is going to have to submit everything that we are to the Lordship and rule of God, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to have to learn to function as parts of the body of Christ, as parts of the whole body of Christ, learn to function together that way while we're here. In the millennium, a different element of the same thing will be brought to us, 
And that's how under the headship of Christ will rule the nations that are to be ruled in the millennium as with the rod of iron. When that is done, the original intent of God was to put himself on display in all of what creation looks like at that time. And we know there will be new heavens and a new earth because the old has passed away and the new then will be different in the way that spiritual things are different from natural things but bear resemblance to natural things so god will be all of who god is currently presently all of his power all of his nature all of his character all of his knowledge all of his wisdom all of his understanding all of who god is will be carried in the man who is christ jesus that's why christ himself will be subject to the father because we are members of his body at that point we're not talking about jesus of nazareth we're talking about the corporate christ of whom he is the head the lord jesus is the head so we're having to learn obedience by the things we suffer we're having to learn to submit to the headship of christ as members of his person of his body we're learning it first individually and then we'll learn how to function corporately that way and the millennium is particularly the time place and manner in which we function corporately that way we'll have the taste of it functionally as this age concludes see the end of every epoch sees the the result that the epoch existed to produce it sees it come to the fore as the reality so at, before this age closes what we will have is a corporate functioning of the parts together under the headship of Jesus Christ heading into the millennium where that will be the requirement of Christ in that time in that time he is the sovereign lord and he rules with a rod of iron that's why these things are said he's not coming back to die he's coming back to finish what he started he will rule for a thousand years and in this sense he fully reclaims the lost estate of the first adam who was put here to do what 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 was the mandate given to the first adam which mandate he advocated have dominion rule put the character of god on display in the fashion in which you rule over creation 
He abdicated the responsibility to do that, beginning with failing to rule for his wife's benefit. Christ has a bride and he does not fail to rule for her benefit. The millennium is where we see the perfection of that final rule for the full thousand years of the coming of the king and us with him. That's why if you're in heaven, he brings you with him. That's why if you're on the earth, you're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and you're caught up together with them, the ones who had preceded us in the ascension. And they, they will, Christ, bring with him. Note the nexus between Christ and the resurrected body. Inseparable. The revelation speaks of them following the lamb wherever he goes. Singing the song of the lamb. Ruling and reigning with him as with the rod of iron. So the millennium is the time where we learn to function under the rule of Christ as the corporate man in rulership over the whole earth. Now that's when it'll be a Christian world. Not the crazy stuff that is actually demonically motivated. And it's, it's motivated to to take any measure of sympathy out of the hearts of people when people who are said to be Christians will be abused terribly. And no one will, no one will raise a cry in their defense. But that's, that's a whole different matter. When we have learned how to rule under the rulership of Christ, as, see, in, in the millennium, the marvel will be that our rule is corporate in every aspect of it, although it's carried out personally. You will be assigned measures of rule, but it'll be like how the hand doesn't do anything or the feet doesn't do anything apart from the motivation of the head. The earth will see the perfect harmony of every aspect of the rule of Christ, carried out individually, but coordinated perfectly by the head in every permutation, in every manifestation of rule throughout the entire body. Now, what will that look like? It will be a sense of consistency, integrity. There will be no curry favoring. You couldn't buy off the judges. The rulers are above reproach. And there's no matter of inconsistency in, in the remotest corner of the rule of Christ. What a thing to behold. 
There'll be no forum shopping. Going where you can get the best result. It, it will be an, an, an appeal, if there are processes of appeal, an appeal from the judgments of one righteous judge, meet with the same responses at the next levels of appeal. Because there's absolute consistency. There's no stacking of the courts. There's no uh, maneuvering the results. After all, it's Jesus Christ, the Lord King, who is represented in every member of his body, has a measure of rule to, to present him as he is. That's what we're learning now, you know. That's, what, that's what's being in, inculcated in us individually now. And as the age ends, you're going to see the emergence of a functioning body of Christ in this form of corporate representation. Because as every age ends, the thing, the fruit that was produced or gestated throughout the existence of the age becomes apparent and it becomes the starting point for the next stage, for the next thing that God is doing. You see? From glory to glory, from strength to strength, from power to power. There will be no diminishment in the scope and efficacy of his rule. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. No end at all, for the mouth of the Lord swore it when the prophecy was uttered. And then when the millennium is finished. See, all of this is to teach the members of the body, the parts of the corporate Christ how to respond to the head who is Christ. All of it is that. How to teach us to respond to the headship of Christ and to do so as one man with one mind. To what end? Well, the covenant God made with himself pre-creation covenant. God with God will finally yield the fullness of the estate for both the Father and the Son. What do I mean? Well, in the pre-creation covenant, the Son was required to die. But he was given an estate and the estate was, and is, that no man may come to the Father except through him. Exclusivity of access to the Father. It's his Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we may say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
But apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from him, there is no way. Apart from him, there is no truth. Apart from him, there is no life. Apart from him, no access to the Father. He got the exclusive right to deliver a people to God. And God got the exclusive right to have a people for his own possession. That's why he calls them sons. Jesus got the exclusive right to say, who may call God Father? And God had the exclusive right to determine who are his sons. And the pre-creation covenant yields the intended fruit of the original intent. God shall have for himself dwelling place, a dwelling place, not made with human hands, for God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. How God must long for his dwelling. When Paul says, meanwhile, we long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. He was speaking about how in view of what is to come, we long to be clothed upon fully by God himself as the inhabitant of the house. Or do we not understand that this is exactly why we're called the house of God? What do you do in a house if you own one? It's where you may be found. It's your locus in quo. The location in which and from which you come forth in all of your glory. Out of Zion, perfection of beauty, God, the living God, shines forth. Now, it's not hard to see with that understanding. It's not hard to see why there is a glory that is excelling that waits for us. Why the goal of the resurrection is to be clothed upon with the presence of God. You could almost, you almost when you hear this stuff, it's hard to breathe. Eyes have not seen. Ears have not heard. It hasn't entered into the mind of a man what God has in store for those who love him. But even now, it's being revealed 
by his holy apostles and prophets. In light of which then, Paul speaks of this matter in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, we're clothed upon by the natural, but there will come a point where we shall no longer be clothed upon with flesh. He said, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment of the twinkling of an eye. When the mortal shall have put on immortality, then is, then is come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because when we are born again, placed in the person of Christ, we have engaged a process that will only come to its finality when God himself is all that he is in the assembled Christ, who has learned to bow to the nuances of the head so they may bow to the nuances of the living God who will be carried corporately in a spiritual man known as the body of Christ. That's what's being worked out. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. Now measure the gospel of going to heaven when you die. Measure that against what I've just talked to you about. Which do you prefer? Indeed, heaven and earth will pass away. So if you prefer heaven, you'll be homeless eventually. <laughs> so let's, let's come back now and talk about carrying the presence of God. Carrying the presence of God. Why did God make you a spirit that he put in a form that he breathed from himself into a form? Well, because this is the first iteration of the process that I've just described to you. God and man in one expression. The crudest of all expressions, I might say, the crudest of the expressions of this divine purpose and mandate. When God made the first Adam by blowing spirit out of the person of God into the formed earth of the man Adam, that was the crudest expression of this principle that I've just uh, announced. It, from there, it moves exponentially upward, greater and greater, a greater and greater flourishing of this principle until all of who God is 
is at rest peacefully in the corporate man that's been formed out of every tongue, tongue, tribe, language, and nation. You see why uh, the church as a racially divided entity has completely missed the mark. Because part of the showing is how the presence of God brings to rest every conceivable division fomented by Satan. It's, it, it is a shocking challenge to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is truly another gospel. And it can only appeal to people who neither understand what God is doing, nor wish to participate in the process. They want to ar arrive at results without having engaged the process. The arrogance of that is to suggest that you're fine the way you are. And there's no need for God to change you because you know the way you should go. Well, I have it on good authority that there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. The way of man cannot be in himself. Why? Because he doesn't know. He's not an eternal being. The only aspect of him that is eternal is the part of him that God gave to him. And that has to continue to remain connected to the mind of God. Otherwise, his soul will always rule because he will proceed by the light of his reason. Which is the problem, you see. Now then, I want, let, let me speak for a moment about this matter of carrying the presence of God. Why is it so important that we have the mind of Christ? Well, it's self-evident, is it not? If you're going to respond to the headship of Christ, if you have a different mind than his, how are you possibly going to even know what he's saying or doing? How is the headship of Christ to be engaged on a mind or in a body that has a mind that is foreign to the mind of Christ? You're double-minded. You're unstable in all your ways. And nothing of the glory of God can rest in you, can rest on you or in you, to change anything. The scriptures explicitly encourage us to adopt the mind of Christ so that the spirit of glory and of Christ may rest on us. Now, what is the challenge there? You know, the, the biggest challenge we face is not operating in the mind of Christ. That's not the biggest challenge. Biggest challenge we face is the renewing of our minds. The 
the biggest challenge we face is not operating in the mind of Christ. Once you get there, once you get there, there being the mind of Christ is functionally in you, functioning, being, and directing, because you're connected to the mind of God then, and you see everything from God's viewpoint. That makes it easy. Easy to live in the manner you were designed to live. That's not the difficulty. The difficulty is the renewing of your mind. Because you do have two minds. You have the mind of the soul. You have the mind of the spirit. The mind of the soul, as we have said, and I won't get deeply into this because I've done a lot of work on the subject. The mind of the soul is naturally opposed to the mind of Christ. Naturally opposed to the mind of the spirit because of the issue of control. The mind of the soul wants to be in control because it relies upon what it sees through the five senses upon which to base its notion of reality. So what, what you, the impulses you take in with your five senses form the basis for your assumptions on what is real. To turn away, to reject what the five senses tell you and the emotions that they stir in you, the memories of prior things like present things, and the way that you position yourself to act on the basis of things that are familiar to you from your emotional connection to them, that's the hardest thing to change. I am fully convinced that this is the reason God gave us such a depth of understanding of blockage removal. Michael Barrett, who is in charge of this project going forward, recently wrote to me and uh, he, had a, he had a wonderful addendum to the things that I said. And, and that he and I have worked on before. But this was his, not, not mine. Michael said that because we have learned these behaviors, even when blockage removal has taken place, there needs to be the continuing focus on proper fathering to steward the changes that have come about to the point where they become an actual renewing of the mind. And he's absolutely right. Uh, from the front lines of what we're doing in blockage removal, I will tell you that has begun to present itself as the real, the next, the next real issue. To, that beyond blockage removal, you have to have spiritual fathers 
to keep walking with you. Now, the work is not the same before as it is after, but you're still unfamiliar with getting your life back. And all the stuff you didn't know about remain as much a mystery to you. And what helps to bring you through relatively uh, quickly and relatively uh, easily is to have a father who can help you understand what things mean. For example, if a husband has not been used to how to, how to treat a wife because the blockages in his own life um, dictated that he work toward survival more than it is that he's thriving. When the oppression, pardon me, when the oppression of his memories and his emotions no longer haunt him, he still doesn't know how to treat his wife, still doesn't know how to lead, still really doesn't know what his wife is thinking, assuming again that she is not similarly beset by her own slate of, of uh, uh, corresponding issues. Often you will have the case where the wife is much further along than the husband. And it was all he could do to be rescued from uh, the kinds of abuse that shaped his, his worldview, abuse uh, where survival became the big thing. And if she's talking to him about anything other than survival, uh, she's going to be hitting a, a blank wall because he's only too happy that life isn't this crushing, oppressive thing to him every day. And she's going to be thinking, well, I've been waiting to see, you know, now that he's had some blockage removal, I've been waiting to see if he has any initiative toward making our relationship more like what it should be. And he's thinking, what are you talking about? We are way, way better than it used to be. And she's thinking, God, how long am I going to have to wait for this to dawn on him? Well, the point is you need, you need contact with the spiritual father who will tell you things you don't understand. Like um, an example might well be uh, if, the, if the wife expects uh, the husband to take leadership in a certain thing and he's not, and he's not pushing back against her leadership, he's thinking, look, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the reins. You should just go ahead and do what you think you should. And she's thinking, no, 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 no. 
you don't understand. This is all about you coming and taking your place. He's thinking, place? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well here. You know, leave well enough alone. We, we're, uh, we're getting along just fine, thank you. Do what you want, you know. I'm, I'm right behind you, I'm backing you. And that's the best he can come up with because that's as much as he knows. And where she has been hoping that this will have more than just that, you know, uh, he's not as secretive as he used to be. Now then, uh, so I was saying Michael is right. Uh, the life after blockage removal is really when life begins. And the, the person who has been locked up and suddenly has been set free has been given their lives back, but it should not be assumed that they have any clue as to how to function in these portions of their lives that have been walled off from them since day one. So a spiritual father will help tremendously uh, unblock the, the, the flow of life into these areas that have been cut off. Anyway, uh, to, to, uh, to pursue the point further, the biggest change is not walking in the mind of Christ. The biggest change is renewing your mind. Once the mind is renewed and you start gaining the momentum of walking in the mind of Christ, it's the only, it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the way you view everything. It's the, it's the view of things that actually make sense. But giving it up often is the mystery of not knowing how to engage something that is intrinsically unfamiliar to you. And if you've received blockage removal, it would seem that you've already made so much progress that to expect any more is unrealistic. No, it's really just putting you in the starting blocks to run the race you were actually put here to run. Until then, you were a prisoner in the wrong mindset and were held in captivity, held in bondage to that mindset. It is, it is fascinating to me when you look at the end of the matter and go back up the chain to where we are right now, uh, it's fascinating to me what the language implies by way of change. So in, uh, in the reading from 1 Corinthians 15, and that reading, by the way, was verses 24 through 28, where he says, then comes the end when Christ delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule, authority, and power. Christ working in you, changing your mindset, 
puts an end in you to all rule, authority, and power other than the rule, authority, and power of Christ. Now, in the millennium, he's going to put down all forms of rule, power, and authority. But before that, he cuts you off from all other forms of rule, authority, and power. The word for rule is the word arche, A-R-C-H-E. It's where we get the, the word for an arch or a bridge or an overarch. Now, the kingdom of darkness continues to try to find a bridge, an overarch to our emotions. So it may continue to exercise elements of its hegemonic rule over us. Christ, in renewing the mind, place, brings an end to that overarch, cuts you off from that overarch. While he's cutting you off, that seems very hard very unfamiliar if to let go of the tendency of wanting to hold on partly to what you know as reality and partly to what you're being taken to as a different reality so he brings an end to all of it eventually this is just to get you acclimated in in your mind to how does this thing look but how do, we carry, how do we get to the place where we carry the presence of God? It doesn't begin with just, well, come along, Jesus. I'm going to take you over here, over there. No, it, it begins with a cutting off of connectedness to the, your former way of life. As it regards key things like rule, authority, and power. It's not just, it's not cutting you off necessarily from friends and from, doesn't require you to change your job or, those are the least of the considerations. A changing mindset, taking on the mind of Christ, cuts you off from the overarch, the long reach, so to speak, of the familiar, concepts associated with the kingdom of darkness moves you out from under that arch separates you from uh, authority and power the word for authority is the word exousia e-x-o-u-s-i-a exousia so we get the word executive to execute as in one who represents power so the C-suite executives of a company are the ones who have the responsibility to execute on the behalf of the company. The executive of the United States, the president, has, the, has certain responsibility to exercise power on behalf of the people. 
so to speak. So the word exousia is the one from which we get the word executive. So the executives of satanic, uh, of the kingdom of darkness are cut off from access to your mind and access to your emotions. So he moves you out from under the ark. He cuts off the emissaries of this power. And finally, the word power. So rule, authority, and power. Rule is arche, the arch. Authority is executive, exousia. And power is dunamis, D-U-N-A-M-I-S. We get the word dynamo or dynamite associated with explosive power from that. So there is a repository of power that has executive functions to tie it to you and to bring you under the rule or the overarch of that dominion. That's what has to be broken off of you in the changed mindset. That's what we've been steeped in. That's our default setting. And so be minded in the way of Christ requires the humility of giving up what is familiar to you, the obedience of being willing to do whatever he's showing you to do. And that begins the process of resetting your mind Taking and the process of resetting your mind takes you out from under three things. <coughs> the overarch, which is the continuing sphere of influence. Hence the scriptures say, you're not of this world, even as I am not of this world. And to cut you off from the executive power, recognizing that Agents of the enemy's power, maybe members of your own household, man's foes shall be there of his own household. And learning to not war with flesh and blood, but reject the authority of the familiar. So often, the people that the enemy uses really do not have any authority over us except the authority we give them because they could be brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts, children, husband, wife, who really do not have any authority over us, but they have a relationship that, by which the enemy is able to exercise executive functions in our lives. And even if you are under the physical rule of such persons, whether or not you're under their spiritual rule is something completely different. These are the distinctions we have to make in order not to provide access to our minds in a continuing way that allows us to be subjugated by the enemy. And of course, power. The power of the kingdom of darkness is purely the power of deception.
It's how the thing masquerades as if it's true, but it is not. And you're often called to confront it, but not with a disagreeable attitude. Just my little granddaughter is uh, one of my little granddaughters. The youngest of them is fond of just saying, if she doesn't want to do something, she just says, nope. <laughs> that's, that's the end of it, nope. <laughs> doesn't argue, doesn't, isn't belligerent, just nope. You know. Now, if there's room and opportunity to explain further, yes, of course, we, should, we shouldn't be disagreeable just for the sake of being disagreeable. But at a minimum, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. You should stand firmly in what is true. These are all how you begin to pivot away from and toward. Pivot away from the mindset of the soul's dominance and toward the mindset of the spirit's dominance. Jesus must reign until all enemies have been put under his feet. That's part of the continuing text. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, just four verses. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The word reign, there, R-E-I-G-N, reign, is the word basileo. B-A-S-I-L-E-U-O, B-A-S-I-L-E-U-O, Basileo. It's where the Romans get the word basilica. Basilica, you know, the building in Rome that's called St. Peter's Basilica. It's derived from the Greek term basileo, which means rain. But what it specifically means is a foundation or basis of power and rule. The foundation or basis of power and rule. What do you base your authority upon? Or upon what do you base your authority? The enemy bases authority on tradition, family dynamics, family history, race, what race you belong to, what are your traditions, what is your culture. Now, as powerful as all these things sound, they really are nothing. They're words that have great weight to them but they do not actually signify the ability to hold you captive. I mean, culture. If you grew up in a minority community, that's the go-to weapon. Well, it's your culture, you know. Our culture is not like their culture. Well, what are the elements of your culture? I mean, is curry an unbreakable cultural tie? <laughs> yes, that, that, 
Uh, now, I know I, I have good friends um, who, uh, for, who might well argue that it is. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, these words sound powerful. And they sound very restraining, but they're not. You have to agree to them. You have to agree to them in order for them to hold you at the core. And part of what you have to resist is the thought that you will be alone if you don't agree to these terms. No, you won't, you won't necessarily be acceptable at that time, and you won't necessarily be acceptable by those people and not at that time, but eventually you will be. I mean, eventually you'll find the community to which you're properly to be assembled. That's why, that's why the word for church is the word ecclesia. Ek means out, klesia means called. God knows you have to be called out of culture. You have to be called out of anything but a holy race. You have to be called out of an identity with a particular nation. These are things you, you have to be called out of. They're powerful things, strong things, restraining things. But that's why you have to break loose from these mindsets. That's why I say to you, the hardest thing in carrying the presence of God is not to possess the mind of Christ. The hardest thing is to renew your mind. And we've spe we're speaking about the renewal of the mind from authorities and powers, from traditions, related to some of the deepest things that people accept emotionally. And finally, from common patterns of, uh, common and familiar patterns of behavior. You have to shake yourself awake because for so many people, they have not examined the behavioral uh, default settings for the longest time. And it's so much easier just to sink down and be swallowed up in the familiar. I would list as part of that that we must break loose from in a culture and the last time I talked about this, I bore down on it, in fact. It's a culture of entitlement. You know, the, the rich and the poor have different forms of entitlement. For the poor, entitlement may be a government stipend. For the rich, an entitlement may be, this is just how we do things in this neighborhood or in this place. 
So these are the ways that the mind has been entrapped. And to possess the mind of Christ must overthrow these forms of entrapment. But everything God has offered us is incredibly powerful for the overthrowing of these strongholds. Every weapon, the weapon of your weapons of your warfare are not carnal. So you don't pull out a sword or pack a gun. That's not the weaponry of this warfare. Those weapons do not work in this warfare. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the overthrow of these ways that the mind is strongly held. That's what the stronghold is. They're the familiar. Now, this, just this last piece, I, I warned you at the head of this time that I was not going to finish this message and I likely will bring you uh, at least one more installment. When you possess the mind of Christ, when Christ is in you, to will and to do what pleases him. As I said, the hardest breakthrough is to accept the renewing of your mind. Once you move past that, then functioning in the mind of Christ becomes what you were put here for. So that yoke is easy. That burden is light. Getting to it is where it's tough. But here's something that it looks like. Here's a, this is just a smattering. I'm not going to delve deeply into any of these uh, several things I've, I've written down. I've written down about five, five different things. They can be uh, broken down further, of course. When you're functioning in the mind of Christ, it is Christ himself who dwells in you to will and to do his pleasure, what is pleasing to him. Here's some of the things you've been empowered to do and that he will do in you as it pleases him. Now keep in mind again, what are we learning? We're learning to act according to the dictates of the head, okay? Not on our own, even if you have the power to do these things, you don't just do them. It's he in you who decides how, when, where, with whom, and he will remind you. There are times when he will remind you that it's not your power and that it exists to serve his interests. And he sees in every matter, he sees the end from the beginning. So you don't just take all I'm saying and say, 
Okay, so now here are the things I get to do. No, it's still him in you, willing and doing as he wills his pleasure. Are we clear? Okay, now here's some of the things. Number one, the power to forgive sins. You gotta admit that's that's kind of coming out of the gate with, with guns blazing, isn't it? This is heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. The power to forgive sins. Jesus said it in John 20, 21. He said, I'm substituting you. You are my relief team. I'm, I'm going to heaven. I'm going back to the Father. John 20, 21, this is exactly what he says. Now, as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. Whose ever sins you forgive shall be forgiven. And whose ever sins you retain shall be retained. John chapter 20, verse 21. Now this is the great commission in the gospel of John. Sending you to forgive sins. Now, do you just go around saying to people, oh, your sins are forgiven. Uh, you over there, your sins are, do I see a hand in the back? Your sins are forgiven too. But no, I don't like you, so your sins can't be forgiven. You see, that's not the mind of Christ functional, is it? No. But when a woman was taken in adultery and was accused, and Jesus wrote with his finger in the sand and looked up and the accusers had gone, what did he say to her? Where are your accusers? She says, I don't know, Lord. He says, neither do I accuse you. Go in peace and sin no more. That's about as powerful as it gets on the earth to dispense the forgiveness of God. Now, who is doing it? Christ is. How is he doing it? Through you. Why? Because it's his mind that has replaced your mind. And there is no gap in the way your mind is functioning and the way his mind functions. Now, if that's startling to you, why do you think God created man by putting a spirit in flesh? What did he have in mind? What are you supposed to do but with having a spirit? Connect to the mind of Christ. If you connect to the mind of Christ, what do you know? You know what is in the mind of Christ. And if Christ is saying, Today, your sins are forgiven. 
come and go have lunch with me, as he did with Zacchaeus. That's what you do. That's what you do. If you don't do that, you're disobedient. And you do not possess the mind of Christ. In fact, you're hindering the will of God that you were designed to fulfill. How else do you think God means to do this, by the way? This is what he designed with which to do it. Is there going to be a time when God will be all of who he is? In all of us together? What do you suppose God will do then when he dwells in us in that fashion? And how will he do it? Compared to that, this is kindergarten. Compared to that, we're in the early stages of development. Fact is, we just have been arrested in our development. We would rather declare a nation the kingdom of God in all of its vile, contemptible ways, then we would come and submit and walk in that which transforms us from the beggarly elements into the glorious residence of the living God. And I was just getting started to forgive sins, to judge matters righteously, That's the second thing I wrote down, to judge matters righteously. Psalm 82, that's where God calls the Elohim to judgment, the magistrates. He requires them to judge by his own divine standard of rectitude. That's why we are told that an elementary doctrine, foundational doctrine is eternal judgment. Judging things from an eternal point of view. That's when heaven comes into earth. That's when the court on the great white throne functionally descends to where we stand. Now, there will come a time, there will come a time, I tell you, when the great white throne will come actually into the earth. Hmm? There will come that time. And there's no disputing the one who sits upon the throne. But we are clothed with what? with his exousia. We are the executive functioning of his dunamis, his power. As the father sent me, so I am sending you. And in the righteousness of our judgments, God is glorified because it's he himself 
using our vessels that brings rectitude back to human society as a gift from God of his divine peace. All that now. We're still just learning. If God means to create, I'm not saying that I have understanding of this, okay? Hypothetically. If God means to create a different form of creation, once he becomes all in all, who do you think, what do you think he's going to use as the instrument for his creation? Well, let me back up. Who did he use as the instrument for his creation when he created this? Was it not by the son by whom he made all things and without whom was not anything made that was made? And everything was made for his pleasure? What is the precedent? If God means to create beyond the millennium, what is the precedent that informs our understanding as to how he will do it? He will remain in his rest and he'll create with the sun, with his dwelling place. That's his pattern. That's his pattern. I'm neither saying that he will create beyond the millennium. I'm not saying that because I don't know. Well, actually, now that I think about it, here's what he does say. And this is from the book of Hebrews, chapter one and two. It is not to angels that he has subjected the judgment of the age to come, but somewhere it is written. What is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that you should visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels, but you crowned him with glory and honor. And we do not see the ages to come subject yet to this judgment, but we do see Christ who was a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. So even as I was about to beg off, I hear, no, he's not done yet. And your roles are just getting started. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard. It hasn't fully entered into the mind of a man what God has in store for those who look like him. It is even now being revealed to us. So is it this great imposition that God is asking us to trade in our old minds for the mind of Christ? Is he robbing us of something? Is it unreasonable? By what measures? Let me, let me go on just, I'm just gonna give you a listing of the rest. I've already held you too long as it is. One of the things, so forgiving sins, judging matters righteously, delivering people from the authority of Satan and his kingdom and breaking the power of Satan to hold them in bondage, delivering them where they can't be captured again, whom the sun sets free, free indeed. 
and he gives the administration to us. What else? He gives us the authority to show others the, what God looks like in mature representation. He gives us the right to say how he appears in mature representation. He gives us the right to demonstrate the power and the authority of Christ over all the realms of creation. I was reading this thing from Mark 11, 20 through 24, where he said, you shall say to the mountain, remove yourself and be cast into the sea and it shall be so if you have the faith of a mustard seed. Now, the word used there is the word airo, A-I-R-O, airo. And it is not meant to be like a command to a thing. It, it's, it's like a ship weighing anchor, getting ready to sail. So it's a figurative intent, meaning to say that there are mountains that seem impossible to move. that you have been authorized, clothed at the mind of Christ, to command that they weigh anchor and drift away. Well, this is obviously a figurative reference because unless you actually in a ship, you wouldn't have the opportunity to weigh anchor and to move on. It's obviously a figurative reference. And what it means is that you may speak the truth to any construct that stands in the growth path of a believer. And it will have to weigh anchor and move off. That when you accurately represent the Lord, clothed with his mind, there is no fixed position in creation that is sufficient to oppose what God wishes to be done in that moment in time. And you speaking to that fixed position, whether it's governments, whatever, if this is the decree of the Lord, because when you have the mind of Christ, you know what his decrees are. They're not your decrees. They're not even what others want you to say. When you possess the mind of Christ, you know what he has in mind. When he was going to feed the 5,000, he told his disciples, simply feed them knowing what they were going to say, but it says, and he already had in mind 
what he was going to do. When we are the body of which he is the head, there is never, he's never lost. He always knows what he's going to do. He knows the end from the beginning. What we're tapping into at this juncture is what he has already decided to do. And if that involves speaking authoritatively to what is in practical form for us, a mountainous, an insurmountable obstacle, like a mountain would be in the natural. Then we, we have the authority to speak what he's saying and the mountain will weigh anchor and move off. The mountain will weigh anchor and sail away. So what am I introducing you to? We've pushed and pushed and pushed past all manner of limits and we now are looking at a land, a land that is fairer than any other land we've ever seen. We're coming on to something as we continue to pursue growth and maturity clothing ourselves in the mind of Christ, which is to be humbled to death, even death on the cross and to obey. He will reset the mind that refuses to bow and reclothe us with what is going on in the mind of God. And then, then, we get to put him on display in everything from forgiving sins to having mountains choosing to move out of our way simply because we have the mind of Christ in the matter. Obviously, this is opening. I was telling Lucy, I said, you know, about the time I think I can rest say, you know, I've gotten as far as I think man is allowed to get. I realized that that was just a ledge on the mountain, that if you go up further, you'll see more. So as I keep going up, and as these things keep being revealed, um, obviously I'll come back and talk to you some more about let this mind be in you, be minded as Christ is and carry the presence of God, which you are designed to do. He will reveal himself. It comes down to this, it comes down to this. He relies upon your feet, your legs, to take him where he wants to be ported. When, when you take him there, he'll then show up. He'll speak as he wishes to speak. And he will do what he wishes to do. He will use your mouth and your body, just like he used your body to get there. And people will think it's actually you. And he doesn't mind that. 
I can't give anything to him. I don't have anything worthy to give to him except the space in which he may live and the portability that my legs afford to carry him where he wishes to go. Even that he supplies, he does all the rest. And he doesn't mind people being confused or people conflating who he is with who I am. It's in fact his pleasure to be revealed, to reveal me, to reveal you with him when he's revealed. I'm going to leave it there until the next time. I commend you to God and the word of his grace that is surely able to build you up, to establish you amongst the sanctified. Don't get caught up in all this foolishness that's coming. It's so much less, so much less than what God has in store for you.